Sorry, Victor, one more. Just a bit more. <laughs> Sorry, your end, right? Is there volume? Can make it maybe a little bit yeah, higher. Okay. Affected too badly. It's not been a, uh, a major. Uh, um, uh, the symptoms tend to be relatively uh, uh, mild. Uh, do pray for our vicar and his wife. They have both contracted COVID, so this weekend they are also out of commission, and uh, we need to uh, continue to uphold them in prayer. Um, some of you may remember in the eighties this uh, movie that um, really uh, took. Uh, the world by storm, and Michael Douglas played a character named Gordon Gecko. And if you watch the movie, there's a you know a monologue that's very famous in there where he has uh, entered into a shareholder meeting. He's a corporate raider. He would basically buy companies and then he chops them up because the sum of the parts is greater than the whole. You know, so when you parcel off all the different parts of the company, you end up making a lot of money. But of course, you destroy all kinds of lives in the, uh, in the meantime because the, the, the employees are all uh, left without work. But he appears at the stockholders' meeting to try and convince them to sell the company to him. And in the middle of it, he has this monologue. He goes like this. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for the lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies. Greed cuts through. And it captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. And he points out you know, that it is this quest for more and this desire for more that has driven uh, society. And in some sense, he's not wrong. But of course, we know with every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction and if you remember, uh, almost a decade ago in Wall Street, where <clears throat> after um, the recession hit, hit uh, I think it was 2008, 2009, um, there were banks who were failing, and then the uh, federal government in the U.S. decided to bail out these banks because they were too big to fail. But the people were really upset because it benefited the top 1%. And the 99%, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement uh, came about arguing that you should not be bailing out this 1%. What about the 99? Why don't you deal with the others who are uh, deeply affected? And of course, all of them standing there are saying, these guys are all greedy. You know, and that tends to be the case. I don't know how many of you are aware of the seven deadly sins. I've subtitled my sermon today, Everybody's Biggest Problem, and I've stolen it from a series of blog articles by a man named Ted Schofield. And in it, he points out that survey after survey after survey of um, the seven deadly sins, when it's done in society, has found that the top sin that is identified by people uh, varies. You know, depending on who you're talking to, for some of them it's sloth, laziness. For others, it's lust. Or maybe it's wrath, anger, 
But what he found in each and every survey is what was counted last of the seven deadly sins in every survey that he looked at was the uh, sin of greed. It's everybody else's biggest problem. It's not ours. And I think Jesus understood that it's not just this, uh, um, you know, everyone else's problem. It's something that all of us need to contend with. That's why in verse 15 of the passage we look at in the Gospels, Jesus said to the disciples at large, not just to the young man who had come to him with his presenting problem, he said, Beware, guard against every kind of greed, for life is not measured by how much you own. You know, I remember in the... Oh, I'll talk about it later. <laughs> but the, the, there was a poster that used to be quite popular. Uh, uh, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. And you see a hearse, and then you see this big mansion in the background, and all these different cars, uh, you know, uh, expensive cars in those days, um, all lined up along the driveway behind the hearse. Right? And, and there's this uh, 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 thinking that pushes us down that path. And I think it's something which is not unique to us living in this day and age. Right? Jesus encountered it, certainly in this uh, encounter we see in the Gospels. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And, you know, it's basically saying, I want my share. I want my rights. I want what's due to me. Now, to be fair, I don't know exactly what was going on, whether he was asking for an equal share, because in those days, uh, the lion's share of the inheritance went to the elder son. And I wish it was still the case today, right? <laughs> Being an elder son myself. But uh, um, maybe it was the fact that the elder son didn't even give the younger son his due uh, uh, inheritance. Whatever the case may be, you know, there is this um, thing that cries out, I want what is due to me. I don't have enough. I want what is mine. You know, the question had been asked of people before, how much is enough? And almost inevitably, it's 10% more than what they have. I remember when I was in NS, in my day and age, I was telling the youth yesterday, you know, I'm trying to find out how much they earn in NS. They're getting over $1,000 okay, in NS. My day is $200, right? And then uh, I passed out of OCS and then I, it doubled to 400 And I was quite happy when it doubled, you know, thinking, oh, yeah. And then when I got out to work, you know, I, I re, uh, got a salary of $2,000. Wow, very happy. But then pretty soon you discover it's not enough. And it could go on and on and on. Even $20,000 a month is not enough. You know, because you find that your needs or maybe your greed grows to expand to whatever is available. And it's strange how we often compare and we always compare upwards. And we think we don't have not enough because we're not satisfied with what we have. How often do we compare to those who are in less fortunate circumstances than us? Doesn't happen very often, does it? But as we deal with this question of greed, I think at the heart of it really is this reality that uh, we are self-obsessed. Look at this uh, uh, account of the parable that Jesus tells about this rich fool. 
it says that, you know, he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, drink, be merry. Eat, drink and be merry. Is Jesus saying it's wrong to plan? Is he saying it's wrong to have uh, abundance? Is he condemning wealth? No, I don't believe that's what Jesus is uh, uh, putting his finger on. If you look carefully at this verse, and I've done this and I've highlighted all the personal pronouns, (laughs) do you see where the focus is? It's I shall do this. I want to store my crops and I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I'll store my grain and I'll say to my soul. The problem is where the focus is on. Rather than seeing himself as a steward, he sees himself as an owner. He believes he did it and it belongs to him. It is his right. You know, that's why in uh, the reading in uh, the epistle, we are warned, you know, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, and evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater, worshipping the things of this world. Do we see that in ourselves? In 2005, a man by the name of David Foster Wallace, who's since uh, passed away, gave a very famous uh, um, speech to a commencement uh, ceremony in Kenyon College. Commencement in the U.S. is the graduation uh, ceremony. And uh, his speech was entitled, This is Water. He starts his speech by telling the story of two fish who were swimming along and encountered an older fish And all the fish asked the two fish, Hey, boys, how's the water? And they were silent. They didn't reply to him, but they swam along a little while. And then one fish turned to the other fish and said, What in the world is water? And the point is that sometimes when you swim in the water, you don't even realize what you are swimming in. And it's in that context he says this, There is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing, now he's not a Christian, all right, so he he points out uh, uh, worship in a very uh, neutral way in that sense, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. You know, even though he's not Christian, he says, you know, you need to be careful what you worship. For example, he says, and he goes through all kinds of examples, but he points out, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. He talks about, you know, worshipping beauty, worshipping health, worshipping education, and how all these things will always leave you disappointed. But his conclusion is this, but the insidious thing about these forms of worship is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing.
And that's what I was talking about, that bumper sticker, right? He who dies with the most toys wins. And that seems to be the mantra for a lot of people. I saw another uh, counter bumper sticker which said, he who dies with the most toys still dies. (laughs) And that's the truth, isn't it? Yet, Jesus gave this wake-up call after he addressed this issue to those who were gathered around him, the disciples that were there. He says this in verses 20 and 21. Concludes the parable. God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does that mean for us? How can we be rich toward God? I feel like, you know, um, we can find the clues in another part of Scripture. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, in uh, chapter 8, Paul addresses the issue of giving. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a key to helping us deal with this, um, this water that we swim in. Whether you like it or not, whether you're conscious or not, you know, we slide into this type of idolatry. In uh, um, 2 Corinthians 8, I pick it up from verse 1. Paul speaks to the uh, Corinthian church. He says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now what was happening was, Paul had been sent out because, you know, Jerusalem had been going through a tremendous famine and the churches in Jerusalem and the people of God in Jerusalem were all affected by this economic downturn. And so, you know, they went far and wide, to all the churches outside who were not as badly affected and said, can you give something to help those who are in need? And the Macedonians, who are far um, less wealthy church compared to the Corinthian church, if you read First and Second Corinthians, you realize the Corinthian church was a very gifted church, it was a very wealthy church, it was a very capable church, but a very problematic one. <laughs> and yet, you know, he's, he points to the example of the Macedonian church, and then he carries on, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. What's this act of grace? I think the um, uh, NIV says it better. See that you excel in this grace of giving. That he calls them to you know, come and be willing to be generous. Now, I always worry sometimes when I speak about money in church, people will say, oh, do you have an ulterior motive? I assure you, huh, I'm, a, I'm an employee of the diocese. My salary is determined by the diocese as a diocesan scale. So whether you give or you don't give, I still get paid. 
<laughs> okay? So it's not for, for self-interest I'm sharing this. I'm teaching you a spiritual principle really here. You know, and then you, I'm, I'm going to skip over uh, verses 8 and 9. I'll come back to it later, but we want to pick it up then from verse 10. So Paul goes on and he gives them this instruction. And in this matter, I give you my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. In other words, he's saying, let your ma- action match your intentions. You know, they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions. All of us have good intentions. We want to be generous. But if you want to be, do it. You know, mean what you say, say what you mean. And that's what he is challenging the uh, Corinthian Christians to do. But he goes on and he says, For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need. And he's giving the principle that we give proportionally. You know, we give uh, according to what God has already given us. If you've been given much, you can give much. If you've been given little, make use of the little and give generously to the things of God. You know, and he's pointing out, you know, that ultimately the goal is that all of us will supply one another's needs. That the resources are there, that no one should be in lack. You know, I was commenting yesterday to our young people and I say, this is actually the theory of communism, isn't it? That let's share the wealth. The whole problem with communism is they try and um, make it happen by law, by command, by decree. And we know that the law has no power to change the human heart. Instead, you know, uh, and I'm really running ahead of myself, we'll see that, you know, the change needs to take place by God's grace, ultimately. That's why it's only ever successful within Christian communities. It was only ever successful in the book of Acts where, you know, they had all things in common and no one had any need. Because it is the grace of God revealed to them to be generous with what they have. But in verse 15, we carry on. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is a quotation from Exodus 16. It's the story of manna from heaven. You remember that? The people of Israel had been led out of Egypt into the promised land. They crossed over into the Red Sea, into the wilderness. But the problem was they found themselves, you know, without provision. And they had no idea because they'd spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They had no uh, concept of how to gather food, how to make sure that they had enough sustenance. And God understood that and God provided. Miraculously, He every morning would provide food which is, I'm sorry for those of you who already know this story, it's for the benefit of those who may not, right? He, he provided something called manna. Well, they called it manna because manna basically means, what is it? <laughs> Nobody knows. But it was uh, a sustenance and it was, um, you know, kept them fed and well fed. 
And the principle was, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, whoever gathered little had no lack. What does this speak to us of? Doesn't it speak to us of the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Last week, I uh, alluded to it. We talked about prayer and how prayer is so important. And I urge you to go watch again uh, the May 8th sermon, if you haven't watched, by Dr. Michael O. I, you know, one of the best expositions of the Lord's Prayer I've ever come across. And in it, he pointed out the purpose of the prayer is, you know, not only that we hallow God's name, but that we uh, pray and we desire and that our whole being be pointed towards your kingdom come, God. Your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And that if that's the focus of our prayer, then what follows actually uh, leads into it. And so he asked the question about this prayer, our daily bread. What does it mean to us who live in affluent, prosperous Singapore? What does it mean for those who live in societies where we have to deliberately limit our food intake to reduce our caloric content of our food, right? Daily bread is, is not really an issue for us. You know, we don't have questions about where our next meal would come from. Where is, what is the relevance of this prayer? He says, our daily bread is meaningless in our societies. Perhaps the reason why Jesus teaches us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, is because He wants us to view every gift, every dollar, every resource, not as a personal slush fund, not as disposable income, but as provision to pursue passionately Christ's purpose for life for the global and eternal worship of and living for God. For His kingdom to come, His will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. What I had pointed to earlier in the parable that Jesus told, you know, is to learn to look to the interests of others, not only to our own interests. To learn to see that what I have isn't mine. That I have been gifted this provision. He's given me the abilities, He's given me the wisdom, given me the opportunities to generate wealth, but I'm not an owner of that wealth, I'm but a steward of it. And that ultimately then, brothers and sisters in Christ, is the solution to greed, is to be generous givers, to have the attitude that what we have the bounteous provision that we have isn't ours. We're called to be wise stewards of it. I want to roll back this passage in 2 Corinthians because I think I want to get to the heart of the matter as I conclude what I'm sharing with you. In verse 8, Paul says to the Corinthian church, I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. And you know, giving is a, a thermometer to our spiritual health. One of the things my father left me in, in, in ministry is teaching me how to be a good pastor. And he always taught me, I remember very early on in ministry, you know, why he was uh, careful in council meetings to look at the um, giving of the church. 
not because he was obsessed with the money or he was anxious about making sure that uh, you know, he would get paid. Like I said, he too was an Anglican priest, so he was also on diocesan scale. The money would come whether the church gave or not. But he said to me, it is an indicator as a thermometer as to the health of the church. Right? We sometimes find, oh, I feel hot. Put a thermometer in. It tells me, oh, 39.6. Something is wrong. Doesn't exactly tell me what is wrong, but it tells me something is disordered in the organism. And he pointed out that if churches struggle with their giving, if they can't meet the expenses, if it's not a result of mismanagement because you know they've they've blown it, but it's because the giving is poor, it gives you an indicator that there's something wrong in the spiritual health of the congregation. May I suggest to you, as much as it is true of you know, the corporate body, it's also true of us individually, that if we struggle to be sincere in our love in terms of giving, we need to ask ourselves what it is we are worshipping. What it is that has you know, captured our hearts. And so the key is found here in verse 9 as to how to become a generous giver, how to combat greed is this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Now, I think this is really the key to everything that we need to understand our position in Jesus Christ. At times, I know I've been a bit harsh on people who preach a prosperity gospel, but I think there's something which they really do get right. I remember speaking to one of my former professors. Uh, he had been doing a study amongst um, um, churches that um, tend to you know, dwell on health and wealth. And he says, you know, as much as there are problems in some of their teaching, it's empirical reality that churches that uh, preach wealth are more generous than other churches. That the giving that they have to other organizations, to other uh, ministries, to uh, the work of God and His kingdom is far greater in these types of churches. And I think it's because they understand this principle. You know, I, and I think we should not shy away from this reality that God does bless us in material ways. Not so that we can become you know, greedy and self-absorbed, but so that we as wise stewards are generous in turn for the work of God. And you know, it, it stands to reason, you see, because if we have a scarcity mentality, we think that the resources are finite, we're always going to be very cautious and worried about giving it up because we feel like there's never going to be enough. But we know that the God that we worship owns the cattle on a thousand hills, that all resources are His, and that when He gives to us, He gives generously, that we truly pray our offertory sentence, that all things come from you, and of your own do we give you. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like the kid um, um, who receives 
freely uh, a lot of candy. I, I don't know if you ever watched this uh, Jimmy Kimmel. He has this thing about um, Halloween. And the next day, you know, they will trick the children about stealing all their candy or, you know, eating out all the candy the parents will tell. And then you see the children's reaction. And it's really cute because there are some kids who are like, oh, it's okay, I've got more, you know. <laughs> and it's when you have a, a mentality that there is an endless supply, that there is no problem with the supply, you can be generous with the giving. And I think that's where many of us struggle because we don't realize the grace of God that's been poured out upon us. That this richness is, I'm not confining it to just material wealth, but the richness of having enough in everything in life, whether it be our health or our social standing or our uh, reputation or the things that we are and do and be, that God's grace is sufficient for us. So I would urge us, you know, as we consider the Word of God and as we reflect on it, where do we stand in this? Paul said to the Corinthians, why the Macedonian church were able to do this is this. They did this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That we give first to the Lord Understanding that God so loved the world that He, what? He gave. You know, it's that principle. We love because He first loved us. We give because He gave to us in the first place. And so when we give ourselves to the Lord, we become generous. Now that's why in our church services, you notice we always have a disclaimer when we take up the offertory. We tell people, if you're a visitor here, if you're not a Christian, please don't feel obliged to give because it's not necessary. <laughs> right? God, in that sense, doesn't need your money. What He'd much rather have is that you give yourself to God first. And only after you've given yourself to God, then can you be a cheerful giver. <laughs> then can you be one who gives with gratitude. Acknowledging all that I have, Lord, is yours. Everything comes from you and of your own do we give you. So as I conclude, what does that mean for us? Where does this leave us? I know I've touched a sore point in some people. <laughs> because I know money is a very touchy issue. You know, we can share all kinds of things but I don't know, I've never been in a cell group that anyone has ever shared their bank statement. Because <laughs> that's too personal. You can talk about problems in the marriage, problems with the children, problems in the workplace, but financial problems often very difficult. But I have to share because it's in the Word of God. You realize Jesus talked more about money than He ever did about heaven or hell. Because he understood the principle that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And Jesus was out to capture hearts. And if he's to capture our hearts, it needs to begin with how our attitudes are towards our material possessions. Now I stand here as your pastor and I don't stand here in judgment of you because I stand here under judgment as with all of you. <laughs> I'm just as guilty of being greedy, of wanting more than what I already have, not being content with what I have. 
You know, I, I've said this to people before. We always like to quote uh, Philippians 4.13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Have you ever looked at what comes before? Paul was speaking that phrase in the context of the fact that I've learned to abase and I've learned to abound. I've learned to have plenty and I've learned to be in need. To be content in all that I have. That contentment with godliness is great gain. And it's in that context, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That Christ is there to give us the ability to deal with this difficult area of our life. My appeal to you as I come before His throne of grace is to come as we should every week in an attitude of surrender. To lay down our idols at the foot of the cross. To open ourselves up and, you know, to remind ourselves again that our security is not in our wallets, but it's in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Let's bow our heads with a word of prayer. Father God, we know that Your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And yet, Lord, we are like that Father who said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We struggle, Lord, in this area of our lives. And Lord, we are reminded by your assurance that what is impossible with man is possible with God. Father, we have this desire, Lord, to be generous people, to be rich towards you. And that gap in our desire and our action, we ask, Lord, for your grace to be sufficient for us. For us to stand on that promise that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. Help us, Lord, to bring our lives in alignment with your will. Help us, Lord, to see that we are called to be stewards of the wonderful blessings you have given us. And not act as if we are owners of it. Lord, may we learn to turn our lives over to you, especially in this area of our life, so that everything else can spiritually line up with who we are meant to be as your sons and as your daughters. We ask and we pray all these things in your son's most precious name. And all God's people say, Amen.